Um, <clears throat> good morning. Happy New Year. Um, it's really good to reconnect, right? We've kind of been absent as a body, uh, but we get to connect right here at the beginning of a new year to worship, to study the Word of God. Uh, so it's just really good to be uh, together again. My name is Scott Gill. For those of you that don't know me, I'm one of the elders here, and uh, it is a, a privilege to, to serve here at the, the church uh, Eric Barton, our pastor, will be back next week. I hope so. Uh, and we will continue in the book of Joshua when Eric gets back. Today, we're going to do more of a transition. We're going to go from the Advent season that we were in last month to the beginning of a new year, which we are in today. And so we're going to kind of just uh, transition with some scripture that I hope fits the bill uh, for this, this period of, of time. I, I hope it does what I want it to, and that's a look back at the first advent and to look forward at the new year. But before we do that, I want you to be honest. How many of you have made a New Year's resolution or two? Raise your hands. Come on. Don't be shy. Who's made a New Year's resolution? I see some hands. Okay. That's good. You all know what a New Year's resolution is, don't you? It's something that goes in one year and out the other, right? <clears throat> How many of you who have made a New Year's resolution have already broken it? Ha-ha, <laughs> more, yeah, <laughs> good, more hands, that's right. Well, psychologists have studied this phenom, and, and it, it's not you, it's not you, okay? It's the resolutions that you make, they're an error. It, it's your resolver, uh, it's not your resolver, it, it's your resolution. So I want to show you the proper way to make a New Year's resolution, and I need your participation. Are you ready? I hereby resolve to encourage and to help all of my friends to gain at least 15 pounds each, say it, to gain at least 15 pounds each, so that I'll look skinnier. That is a resolution that you can live with. Another one, you can... You can Resolve to pick up the habit of procrastination. Amen. I want to resolve not to act my age. But, you know, we, we, we often poke fun at, at New Year's resolutions. But, but we as Christians, we actually do need to make some resolutions. We, we need to be mindful of, of who we are, whose we are, what God has done through Christ for us. But what is a resolution, right? Well, I would say this. It's a resolve. It's a determination. It entails tenacity, doggedness, and dare I say, faithfulness to that resolve. So what then should a Christian base his resolve? Well, the answer, I think, is based on the very word of God. Um, and it has to do with the truth that Paul wrote in his letter to the Galatians. He was encouraging them in that truth and as to who they were, as to whose they were. So, like I said earlier today, that this sermon is really more of a transition from the advent in, into the new year, and we'll pick up on, on Joshua next time. But I, I think that the, the scripture selected here um, adequately talks to, to this transition. So, open your Bibles, <clears throat> if you will, to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, when, very short verses, four short verses. Verses 4 through 7. I'm going to be reading from the uh, New King James today. <clears throat> Excuse me again. Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says this. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, 
to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now, that is the stuff resolve or resolution is made for. This year, resolve to be an heir of God. That's our big idea for the day. This year, resolve to be an heir of God. After all, if you're a believer, you're a son. If you're a son, then an heir of God. So then we need to resolve to live like who we are, an heir of God. Now, I realize there is a contextual fallacy uh, that comes into play as we kind of just pick four verses you know, out of a, a letter. Uh, and so I, I don't want to fall foul of that. I want to give the, the scriptures to I'm, I'm going to try to give us a little bit of background information uh, to the book of Galatians here in chapter 4. And, and I hope, even though it's kind of a, a, a rushed view of a, of a synopsis or an overview, I hope that it, it prevents us from falling into to such a, a fallacy. See, Paul had finished his first missionary journey uh, in, in the southern regions of modern-day Turkey. You can read about that early on in, in Acts, his first missionary journey. But when he got back home, he had gotten a report that Judaizers had come in behind him and were preaching a different gospel than just the gospel of grace, which is what Paul preached. And so Paul was, uh, how we put, he was miffed. He was a little bit aggravated, agitated at what had gone on. So he wrote this letter. If you read in Galatians 1, uh, verse 6, he says, I am amazed um, but the word for amazed there, he goes, I, I marvel at. Uh, the, the Greek word there, it can be either positive or negative, but I think we, we look to the context of what Paul was saying early on in, in this, this, this chapter, in this letter. He was appalled that they would take the gospel of grace and add something to the cross of Christ. You know, he, he, he was appalled at it. And, and so he uses chapters 1, 2 to kind of talk about his resume to, to talk about the gospel of grace that God has given him. And then in, in chapter 3, before he talks about justification by faith, he says this, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you <clears throat> that you should not obey the truth? And here in chapter 4, Paul himself is making a transition from justification by faith to sanctification by faith. And he does this with an illustration. And again, I'm at great risk here of just taking a few verses within the illustration, within the greater context of the letter, but I think we can stay within the lines intended by the Holy Spirit that he provided Paul. But before we unpack this, let's just, let's just pray together as a body. Heavenly Father, Lord God, mm, we are so thankful for your word. We're thankful for your spirit that helps us to understand the word that you've given us. As, as David wrote many, many, many years ago, Lord, your word is perfect, converts the soul. Your testimony is sure, making wise the simple. Your statutes, the right, Lord, they rejoice the heart. Your commandment is pure and enlightens the eyes. It's your words, Lord. To be more desired than gold and they're sweeter than honey and honeycomb, Lord. And so as we look to Paul's letter to the Galatians, Lord, may it be your words, your words that resound in our hearts. And God, I just ask that what proceeds from my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, that it be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our Redeemer. 
Amen. All right, let's look at Galatians chapter 4. And, and look, we got four short verses, and I've got four observations. Um, and um, I think these four observations all really tie into what should a Christian base his resolve on. And the first one is, is this, the person and the promise of Christ. Look with me uh, in verse 4. Now, I'm going to, what the words that come out of my mouth are going to be a little bit different than what you see on the, the screen. It's just because, um, just the way I was, was trained in this, so... Forgive me. So now when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, having been born of a woman, having been born under law. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law. I know, like, like I said, we, we've kind of plunged right in here. And a lot of your, your Bibles will start off, verse 4, with the word but. And that's perfectly fine. It's a Greek word, de, which is, you know, delta epsilon, which is just a, a short little conjunctive marker. But I, I, I like the word now because he's talking about time, right? When, when the fullness of the time came, right? And I think that it's what they call a, a, a temporal frame in, in discourse. Paul is setting something up. Even within this illustration, Paul has segmented off something with what they call a, a temporal frame here. And it's very rich. And so I want to just focus on now when the fullness of the time had come. The word fullness in the Greek, it not only means full, but it means complete and doing it right. So things are done right in the fullness of time. And I think there, there are three things here that, that, that speak to its richness. Number one is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy concerning the first advent. Number two is the marking of time completing the, the old age, the age of the old covenant with the ushering in of the new age. And third, it marks the time in which there was a common language, the Greek language, and there was this massive infrastructure of roads and the security of shipping lanes by which the gospel could go out. It was God's perfect timing, and in that perfect timing, he sent forth his son. Two things. He sent forth. That's a Greek word that means for the purpose of fulfilling a mission in another place. In the fullness of time, he sent out his son to fulfill a mission. From heaven to earth. Now, I don't know about you, but in, in my mind, it goes to Philippians chapter 2. And we kind of sang some of the words to that earlier today. Um, I'll just read chapter uh, 2, verses 5 and on. It says this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, those of earth, those under earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Mm. Amen. Secondly, I want you to note just in that God sent forth his son, right? Again, this is an illustration that Paul is using here in Galatians chapter 4. He's going to expand on sanctification throughout chapter 4 and specifically in chapter 5. His son, it just speaks to the, the deity of Christ. God fully man. God, excuse me, Jesus fully God. Jesus fully man. Look at the two modifying participles that follow that phrase. Uh, 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, having been born of a woman. All right, now we talked about this during the first advent. You go back to Genesis chapter 3, verses 15. The promise, right, to, to, to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, the promise to David of an eternal king to sit on his throne, right? You go to Isaiah, the prophecy, chapter 7. We, we, we then saw that again in Matthew during the Advent study that we went through, the fulfillment of, of Isaiah 7. Having been born of a woman, fully God, fully man, and having been born under law, Jesus Christ, the one who completely fulfilled the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, by keeping it completely. So how do we think about this verse today? I think it's a good example of how to keep one's resolve. God is faithful to his promises, and if you want to think of it this way, he keeps his resolutions. In the fullness of the time, in his perfect time, he sent forth Jesus, his son, fully God, fully man, to fulfill his mission. So I, I, as I prepared this, I was kind of wondering, you know, do, do I really rest fully in the promises of God? Do you rest in the promises of God? Do you believe in his word? You know, belief is, a, is an interesting concept. Uh, I like what C.S. Lewis wrote about, <clears throat> about belief. He said this, You never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or its falsehood becomes a matter of life and death. That's rich. That is deep. You never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or its falsehood becomes a matter of life and death. Now, I think I, I, I kind of get what C.S. Lewis meant. I'll just share a little example of this. <clears throat> Have you ever been rock climbing? Uh, rock climber back there. I know I'm old now, but, but at one point, my, my, young, my then young teenage daughter and I went to Colorado and went, went rock climbing. Now, I have a fear of heights, but let me tell you something about rock climbing. It's not so much about your courage to get over your fear of heights as it is about belief. It's about belief in the equipment and belief in your climbing partner. That is what keeps you from falling to your death when you're rock climbing. So let me just come back to that, that challenge. Do you rest in the promises of God? Or, or are you kind of like that select number on, on your, your mattress? You know, do you kind of dial in your, 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 uh, you know, how comfortable you are with what God has promised? I want to challenge you this year. I want to challenge you to rest more fully in the promises of God. And if you've not yet trusted in Jesus Christ alone as your Lord and Savior, I want to invite you to do it right here, right now. January 8th, 2023. If you've not done that, there's no more important decision than you'll ever make, one that lasts for all eternity. And he, if I can just continue with my rock climbing now, he is the one, he is the one that is not only the equipment but the person, your partner, that will save you from falling to eternal death. For the rest of us that do believe, I just want to encourage you in your walk to be faithful to the one whose promises are are solid, are rock solid. So what should a Christian base his, his resolve on? Number one, you got the person and the promises of Christ. Number two, in verse five, we get the purpose of Christ. Look with me in, at uh, verse five, please. <clears throat> we see a twofold purpose. It says this, to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, again, one of the, one of the dangers here of... Um, just diving into an interpretation. If you looked at the Greek text, um, the definite article, the word the, 
is not in front of the word law. It just says law. Um, and you kind of have to look at context. I think, it, I think in verse 4, he was talking about the Mosaic law. Christ was born as a Jew under Mosaic law. I think here as we get into verse 5, Paul is now expanding the word law to just include legalism in general. Remember, Judaizers had come in behind him. So I think this speaks to uh, Judaizer legalism, Gentile paganism, uh, those sorts of things. And he's just addressing legalism in general here when we get to, to verse 5. I mean, after all, that's, that's what his, his, his letter is really about. It's about grace, the victory of grace over, over law. And so we see this. He says, now most of your translations will say this, to redeem us. If your translation says to deliver us, I think that's a good translation. But it's really a, it's a Pauline word, and it's, it's used to, to capture the idea of buying something out of the marketplace. Specifically to Paul, it's about buying a person, buying a slave out of the market. And so what's, what's really critical about this word, it's not just the purchase of that someone, it's the idea that the one who's doing the purchasing, it was very, very costly to them, right? And so you, you've got here, Christ paid dearly to set you free. To him, a great cost to you, a grace. His grace given freely so that we can live freely to better serve him, not as slaves. That, that was his whole contrast here. Don't live as a slave. You're not a slave anymore. You're free. You're a son. You're an heir of God most high. That's the purpose of Christ. It's to redeem us from that slavery. And then number two, he says this, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Free from the bondage of sin through faith in Christ, we're to receive the adoption as sons, weothesia. And, and, and this is a, a really, really cool. Paul, Paul uses this construct a lot. Um, it, it speaks to a formal and legal declaration of someone who is not one's own child, but it's henceforth to be treated and cared for as one's child. And Paul used this uh, five times in the New Testament, three times in the book of Romans uh, here in, in Galatians. But he used this to, to speak about um, the consequences, the benefits of our adoption as the son of God. Here are just four that I picked up on. Number one, the adopted son lost all rights in his previous family and his natural father... Lost all rights over the son. This is good news. Our former father, the ruler of this world, Satan, he's lost all rights over you. Right? We, we have no obligation to obey him, let alone follow him. Number two, in the new family, the adopted son gained rights equivalent to blood relatives. That's good news. We, we have the rights on par with Jesus Christ himself. I'm not saying we're God. I'm not saying that at all. But we have that, that privilege that God has made us a son or a daughter of his. Do you think of yourself that way? If not, make that resolution to think of yourself that way. Number three, as adopted sons, one's previous life was wiped clean of any debt. It's good news. Our debt, our sin debt, fully redeemed, paid for in full, completely, completely wiped out. And this, is, this is ultimate loan forgiveness. And um, your past has been wiped clean. <laughs> And it's not just about the spiritual or, or the financial or, or the physical aspect. I want you to think of it also as the emotional aspect. And, and I, I did say this in the first service. I'm going to say it again here because it, it's something that, that kind of bothers me a little bit. We, we had a conversation with our family over the holidays, and the topic of self-forgiveness came up. 
You know, I did such and such, and I can't forgive myself of it. And um, if God Almighty has forgiven you, exactly, right? If God has forgiven you, why, why are you, why are you, that's Satan trying to come in the back door, right? Shut in in his face. You're a son of God, not of his. So if that offends somebody, I, I apologize, but, but I firmly believe God has forgiven you. You know, let, let's, let's move on from that. Don't, don't live in that, that, that guilt. Um, also, that, that Paul used, it, it, when you think of the, 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 the Greek aspect of adoption, it was very much a family. But, but here's something that's really important that you may not know. In the Greco world, adoption was father-driven. You get that? Adoption was father-driven. It was his initiative through his desire and his affections that the adoption took place. Adoption is father-driven. I just think that's, that's really cool. All right, so how might you think of this, this verse here today? Well, look, the purpose of the son's mission was clearly to redeem us and to give us rights of sonship. Now, I read in one of the commentaries in my study here that also uh, beyond just the function of adoption, it was actually a tool of the elite. So, so um, when you think about that, the, the elite selectively picked their legacy, selectively, selectively picked who they were going to leave their inheritance to. And so adopted sons were pulled into a, a bigger story. And, of course, they were expected to fulfill um, the imperial purpose of that family. But it's being part of a bigger story. Now, you folks may not be aware, but my family, our immediate family, was, was formed through the process of adoption. Both our, our daughter and our son are adopted with all the legal um, rights, all the privileges that my wife, Jenny, and I can afford uh, to, to give them, and we, you know, we do that with great love, with great honor, with great respect amongst one another. We're a very, we're a very tight family. We're, we're very close knit. But, but that's not to say that Jenny and I are are elite uh, in any way. We're, we're, we're not. But, but this experience has given us an insight into the grander picture of being adopted into the elite family of God, being part of a bigger story, a bigger life. So this, let me challenge you. To think about that truth of your sonship here in 2023 as an adopted son of God with all the rights and privileges of God. How are you going to approach life today, tomorrow, this week, this month, 2023? You need to know who you are. That's the stuff that Christians should make their resolves over. you got the person, the promises of Christ. you got the purpose of Christ. And number three in verse six, we get the provision of Christ. Look with me, Will, in verse 6. <clears throat> it says this. And because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts. The provision of Christ, his spirit in you. This kind of reads a bit like today's modern infomercial, right? You know, but wait, there's more. Believe now and you get the Holy Spirit, right? And it's all free. It's all free. No shipping and handling. It's all free. As adopt, some people are laughing good. Be joyful, please. Um, As an adopted son of God, he sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts. We got the same verb we saw back in verse 4. He sent forth. If you remember, in the fullness of the time, God sent forth his son. And at conversion, God sent forth the spirit of his son into your heart. Sent forth. Fulfill a mission in a foreign place. The Holy Spirit is sent forth to fulfill a mission. Now, again, 
This, this is an illustration. So Paul just says, into your hearts. Into your heart. He's going to elaborate chapter 4, especially chapter 5, what he means by the mission of the Holy Spirit to be in your heart. Chapter 5, if you, <clears throat> if you look at it, I think I choked up about this time last service. When you look at chapter 5, there's kind of this three-tiered um, viewpoint of, of walking with the Spirit. If you go to 5.16, he says, you know, walk in the Spirit. Right after that, 5.18, be led by the Spirit. And by the time you get down to 5.25, he says, walk in step. He uses a different verb there, walk in step. March, it's a military term, march in step with the Holy Spirit. So what Paul is talking about in this, 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 this short little illustration, and what he wants to emphasize is the Spirit's mission is to come alongside of you, to lead you, to guide you towards spiritual maturity. Yes, you're a son, but, but God doesn't want you to be a little bitty son. He wants you to grow into the airship that you have. And so he says, mm, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, into your hearts. If you were to look back in Proverbs chapter 4, the, the significance here of your heart, uh, it has to do with your will. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Keep your will in concert, in connection with the Holy Spirit. And then look at the last provision here in chapter, uh, in, sorry, in chapter 4, verse 6. Crying out, Abba, Father. If you've got the NIV translation, it tells you who says that. It's not you here. Paul's saying it's the Holy Spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. Now let me just make a couple of uh, quick points about this. The verb, it's a participle in the present tense. It's a continual ministry. The Holy Spirit's constantly crying out, Ava, Father. It's his continual ministry with you. The verb kradzo, kradzo, it means to cry out. This isn't some little boo-hoo-hoo. This is to cry out. Sounds like our English word croak. It should be guttural, maybe even rough, raucous, right? To cry out. Jesus, when dying on the cross, he cried out loud and breathed his last. It's forceful. It's passionate. Let me just also just take a couple minutes to talk about the word Abba. And I think we find it three times in the New Testament. Um, and I, again, I don't mean to offend anybody, but I think we, we, we kind of think of it as a, a little five-year-old sitting on their daddy's lap, being read a bedtime story, oh, daddy. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's intimacy. It's trust. I get that. I really, I really get that. But when you look at the examples in the Bible, uh, in Mark, um, Mark 14, <clears throat> he, that's Jesus, Jesus went a little farther, fell on the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. So you know where I'm going with this. And Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, not what I desire, but what you will, what you purpose. Abba, Father. Now, I know when you get to Romans chapter 8, Paul uses this example again. It's many years later than, than when he wrote Galatians. And, and in that case, he does say, we cry out, but it's we cry out by the Holy Spirit. But in chapter 8, in, in his uh, chapter on sanctification, he's talking about mature, mature believers, mature believers in Christ. And I think that's the point here 
in, in Galatians chapter 4, it speaks of a crying out on the part of the Holy Spirit. It speaks of the crying out on the part of a mature one, somebody that is um, spiritually mature. So it's not like daddy. It's more like father, father. Uh, I, just, I, just, I just see the passion uh, of that here. So the purpose of the son's mission was to redeem us and give us rights of sonship. And the purpose of, of the Holy Spirit is to give the power to use those rights. Now, I mentioned earlier about chapter 5 in the book of Galatians. I, I just think it's a wonderful chapter about spiritual growth, about spiritual maturity. Uh, I, I talked about him talking about kind of the immature one is, is walking in the spirit being led by the spirits of more mature, and then marching in lockstep with the spirits. So let me just kind of give you a little bit of an illustration of what that looks like. Let me go to the, the, the immature side of it. One late summer, my, uh, my wife and I uh, took our then young kids to Colorado, and uh, we took them ice skating. Uh, and um, on the walk back from the skating rink to our hotel, um, I was walking with my family. I was in the presence of my family. We were walking on a path, uh, a designated path to walk on. And off to my right was a fly fishing course that was taking place in a field. And the instructor was teaching them, you know, how to cast and do certain things with, with, with the fly rod. So while I'm walking with my family in the presence of my family, on the path of my family, I'm distracted. And I walk straight into a light pole. It, I'm, it knocked me s- silly, and my family's over there just cracking up because everybody within about a 100-yard radius of us heard the hollow thump of that metal pole and were looking at me kind of dazed and going around. But, but, but that is to illustrate the immature. We walk with the Spirit, but we get distracted. You know, Peter steps out of the boat, right, walks in the water towards Jesus, and he looks down at the waves and said, oh, that's not supposed to be happening, and he starts to drown, Right? What, what Paul is trying to get to is to get towards this whole idea of marching in lockstep with the Holy Spirit. Now, a few years back, my son graduated from Marine boot camp, and my family flew out to watch the graduation. I don't know if you've ever seen this. It's truly an amazing thing. You've got hundreds of troops that are marching with a pl- platoon leader, and they are they go, the platoon leader goes straight, they go straight. Turns left, they turn left. Turn right, they turn right. All at the same time. It is precise. It is precision marching. And I think that's what Paul was getting at. Not just walking with the Spirit, but it's walking in lockstep with the Spirit. That, that should be what we're thinking about when we're talking about our, our spiritual growth. I think that's Paul's point. As sons, we should follow the lead of the Spirit and grow into our sonship to the point of precise marching with the Spirit of Christ. Are you walking in the light post? I still do from time to time. That's probably why I'm so silly. Um, You know, so what are you supposed to do with this? We've gone through three verses, but the biblical truth is this, that at the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son to fulfill the mission of redemption in order that we might receive the adoption of sons and that God sent his son's spirit into our hearts so that we might grow in spiritual maturity and intimacy with Abba Father. Now, I love it when Scripture provides the implication for us, right? And that's what we're going to get to in verse 7. So what should a Christian basis resolve on? Well, we've talked about the person and promise of Christ, the purpose of Christ, the provision of Christ. Well, let's look at this last verse here, verse 7, chapter 4, and we will see the product 
of Christ. It starts off like this, therefore. Now, your translation might say so. That's fine. If you've got the NASB or the uh, ESV, I, I don't recall what the NIV is offhand. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So we're going to land the plane right there. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And the first word of that text I've already I said is the word therefore. Like I said, you may see so. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Greek word here. Um, what it really does, it, it talks about uh, inference and result. It, it, it takes a look at what preceded it. And, and based upon reasoning and, and logic, you conclude from that, and then there's a result or a product afterwards. Clearly, the product is airship, right? That's what Paul is, is driving home. Therefore, so as to, so... Uh, he's pointing to the logical conclusion that he wants to reach in this illustration, and that is, if you're a believer, you're a son. If you're a son, then you're an heir of God. If you can put up that, that next slide, let me just kind of uh, maybe look at what this whole illustration is trying to get to. He's trying to contrast your life before salvation as a slave. You are a slave to sin. You are a, 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 you are a slave to the, to the directions of, of this world. He says, don't think like that. That's not you anymore. You've come to faith in Christ. Therefore, you're a son of God most high. And as a son of God most high, you're an heir. And he wants you to think that way. So when you look at that arrow, it's all about now growing in Christ Jesus, growing in, in maturity and in fellowship with him. Why would you want to go back? Why would you want to go back to the bondage, to the bondage of sin? So I, let me just kind of leave that with you for your own application, and, and let me just kind of wrap this up with something. Um, I want to just read from a writing of um, one of my mentors for many years, still is. Uh, he's also one of my Greek exegesis teachers, professors, um, and um, he, wrote, he wrote this. It just, just seemed very applicable to what we just went through. Things were pretty miserable for my grandchildren when they lived in the orphanages in Russia. The Russian government at that time they were adopted spent less than a dollar a day on these children for food and medical care. To say the least, there was a lot of neglect. Both kids had rickets because they rarely saw the sun. They were pretty much left in their cribs all day to cry. They had never seen a man. Bonding is a problem for most of these kids because without parents to love them and consistently nurse them, they have no sense of belonging. Needless to say, they enjoyed a better life after adoption. But one day, my granddaughter Grace, what a fitting name. One day, my granddaughter Grace reached into a fire and got burned. It hurt. She cried. However, wouldn't it be foolish for her to go to her parents and say, I want to go back to Russia. I don't like it here. I got burned. You too, as a Christian, may have gotten involved in the Christian life of faith and gotten burned. How foolish to say to God, okay, I tried this faith thing, and look where it's gotten me. I've gotten burned. I want to go back to living under the performance principle of legalism. I want to go back to the orphanage of the law. That is exactly what the Galatians were doing, and that is exactly what neo-Galatians of today are doing as well. Trading the joy of a thank-you life for the burden of a have-to life. Falling from grace back into bondage, from liberty to law. My take on all of this, you know, I want to just... Take a line from a movie, It's a Wonderful Life. You've been given a wonderful gift this year, resolved to live as an heir of God, not as a sin, not as a slave to sin. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for what you have left us. Well, Lord, we thank you for your spirit that enlightens our minds to, to your word. And Lord, we just ask that it truly be a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, that we be mindful as we start this calendar year of the person of Jesus Christ, that we be mindful of the purpose of Christ to redeem us, to adopt us as sons, the provision that you have made his spirit in our hearts and the product of Christ, heirship. Hmm. Lord, those are just powerful, powerful things in which we are. We should live daily, hourly, by the minute. Lord, I just ask that we do that, that we live as heirs directed solely by your light. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.